0: Hello and welcome to the World Extreme Medicine Podcast. I'm your host, Stephen Wood, and I'm an EM and critical care nurse practitioner and medic with over three decades of EMS experience here in the Metro Boston area. I'm joined today by Dr. Such Prusty. Dr. Prusty is an emergency medicine doc and pilot and a FAA flight instructor. Uh, He has over 10 years of service in the U.S. Army as a flight surgeon, he is the mastermind behind My Heart MD, and has a special interest in EKGs. And today we're going to talk about uh, EKG findings and arrhythmias in hypothermia. And Dr. Prusty, I understand we're going to start off with a case. So why don't you go ahead and lead off with that? And then we'll chat about the case and some questions as they arise.
1: All right, well, Stephen, thank you so much for having me on. It's
0: my pleasure to be here with you,
1: and hopefully this will be a, you know educational um, discussion. Now, let's start off with a case, and this is something that we see all the time, and I'm sure you do too. Uh, this was an 18-year-old obese male, a diabetic obese male from one of our local universities who came in by paramedics after being found in a snowbank, and uh, unknown downtime, he appeared intoxicated. Uh, there was some um, alcoholic beverage, empty cans and things like that around him. And um, on their evaluation, he was, you know, minimally responsive, responsive, but not really that much um, to both verbal and uh, tactile stimuli. Um, how does that sound to you? Something you've seen before
0: a little bit? Well, yeah, this is, uh, I mean, it's something I think we see here in the Northeast. And I know, you know, many of our listeners who come from uh, colder regions, both here in the United States and abroad, um, found in snowbank is a fairly common complaint, I'm sure. It's classic, right, it's found classic. in a snowbank.
1: Uh, right. Well, that's right. And uh, paramedics uh, got vital signs um, as follows. His blood pressure was 90 systolic, over 60. He was barely cardiac down to about 45 beats per minute. And his tinpack temperature was 82 Fahrenheit. Uh, it's 27.8 degrees Celsius for our listeners outside of the U.S., right? And his fingerstick blood sugar at the time was 420. So, you know, common presentation, common mechanism, but a complex case all at once. Uh, he was actually brought in by paramedics uh, and en route to the hospital in the ambulance. He became less responsive and uh, somewhat more bradycardic with his heart rate dropping down to less than 30 or so. And um, um, so that's, you know, that's, you know, that's what we have. We have a, an obese young male who came in and prior to coming into the hospital, uh, he actually he actually lost his pulses and was completely unconscious. And this happened actually just as he was entering. So appropriately, they started CPR immediately and they pulled into our trauma bay uh, with CPR in progress and, and handed him over to us. Um, In the ER, uh, at once, it was realized that uh, this was, in fact, going to be a difficult airway. No question about it. He was obese. His mom potty was somewhere between four and five. Uh, CPR was continued, um, and he was intubated immediately. And pacing was attempted, actually. Pacing, we'll talk about that a little bit, but pacing was attempted. He got a little bit of atropine trying to get his heart rate up. Uh, Nothing really helped, and so... CPR was continued for the entire time that he was warmed. It was quickly recognized directly that he was extremely hypothermic as the paramedics had had already established. And so he underwent both passive but active, active warming. Um, And uh, it was a prolonged case, you know, all hands on deck, everybody involved, young patient, don't forget, I go back to that all the time. Um, And eventually, Eventually, he had ROSC, a uh, return of spontaneous circulation. All right, so that's the
0: case. It's a great case. It's a great case with a lot of interesting pieces to what we want to talk about today. And I want to dive into you know some of the um, cardiac issues that arise with hyperthermia, but let's first you know, many of our listeners are involved in austere medicine and in expedition medicine and are familiar, but, you know, some, some are not, um, and, uh, or come from tropical regions where this is not a common presentation. So let's first talk about hypothermia. Um, you know, how do we define hypothermia? I know there are a couple of different classification systems, um, but how do we define hypothermia and, and, and what kind of tools do you use to kind of, determined that this patient had, you know, it was suffering from hypothermia?
1: Yeah, I think um, it's most, uh, I think generally recognized that a temperature of less than 95 degrees Fahrenheit or 35 degrees Celsius is, is pretty much what we call hypothermia. Um, it's, uh, it is also important that you obtain the temperature in a, in a reliable way, like rectal temperature, which we did. Uh, and not just assume that a tympanic temperature or forehead scan is going to be good enough to determine this this um, this uh, diagnosis of hypothermia. Um, it's also important, given our audience tonight, it's uh, important to recognize that you know <clears throat> uh, the, who's at risk. Right, the extremes of age people are at risk. So we're talking about infants, younger people, but older people also. Older people also are at risk, and it's interesting that 50% of all hypothermic cases are over the age of 65, right? That's an important thing to, I think, realize. And so it's extremes of age, number one, but also in regards to this discussion, it's also extremes of temperature and environmental conditions, right? That's an important thing also. Um, So uh, if you look at causes, you know, certainly there's accidental causes, um, you know, Patients like, hit, like the, this case, actually, the guy was found on a snowbound. He had no idea why, really, right? But he came in. There are metabolic causes, there are infectious causes of hypothermia, and drugs, drugs, and alcohol are, are important to understand and, uh, and recognize as an important cause because in the United States, it is the most common. All right, it's the most common cause of hypothermia um, around here, at least.
0: No, that's great. Um, so, I assume that you guys uh, were able to, to get a temperature rectally. Um, but what's important to kind of note from that is that your standard thermometers are generally not going to be able to measure um, extremes of hypothermia. And so, it's important to have a rectal thermometer that's specifically a hypothermia thermometer. A lot of emergency departments will have specific kits for that. Um, other yeah. meth, in you know, one, one caveat to that is it's important that, you know, really cold stool can actually interfere um, with those measurements. Um, Other measurement, um, you know, uh, other ways to measure temperature include esophageal, which you mentioned um, and also urinary catheter. Um, You can also measure temperature through a central line, although, you know, you're not going to have a central line that quickly in this kind of patient. Um, So, that's that's a, a great way you know that, that's important to know that you need to identify um, you know temperature using modalities that are probably less you know familiar to providers. Um, and second, if out you know outside of being able to measure temperature, you know there's also the Swiss method um, which uses symptoms. Um, this patient would have all obviously been classified as as pretty severe um, hypothermia. So you guys were able to recognize it quickly. Um, certainly, it probably helped that he was found in the snow, um, but we know that you can also, you know, become hypothermic in other environments, um, even in a residence if it's cold enough. Uh, and so, uh, you've got to think about those clues. Um, so, let's then talk about, you know, we we've recognized he's hypothermic, and we know, you know, he's severely hypothermic based on his presentation. But what are some of the clinical stages of hypothermia that? you think about as a clinician when you have these patients coming in?
1: Yeah, you know, I think um, as, as you have seen, I'm sure these patients, um, you know, they come in with different, st- with different uh, presentations. And so we tend to divide them up into sort of mild, moderate and severe uh, hypothermia for, for a variety of reasons. Um, and uh, just for definition purposes, you know, mild th- hypothermia is typically between 90 to 95, Again, for our um, our listeners outside the US, is that's uh, 32.2 degrees Celsius to 35 degrees Celsius, right? And and the reason why that's important is because this is the this is the stage in which shivering shivering actually occurs, and shivering is a tremendously effective way for the body to self-regulate and bring that temperature back to normal. Um, and as long as the patient is shivering, that's a good sign. right? We're going to keep letting that patient shiver and doing their part in in thermoregulating, thermogenesis, all that stuff is important to, to help him come back to, or her bring, come back to that uh, normal level. Uh, there's also in this stage, some level of confusion, and uh, we see that uh, pretty pretty commonly. Uh, the, the next sort of phase or stage, clinical stage, would be moderate, moderate hypothermia. And typically this is between uh you know 86 to 90 degrees fahrenheit uh which is about 30 to 32 32. 32.2 degrees celsius and this in this stage you tend to see some sort of uh, you know bradycardia slowing of systems um importantly in this stage shivering stops right shivering stops uh there's obviously more more confusion more um Changes within the brain, and this is the phase in which we start seeing things like ECG abnormalities, and um, and the most uh, commonly seen one is you know is sinus bradycardia, but we also see something that is always tested on our board exams, and we call that Osborne waves, uh, and that's when the the these findings tend to appear on the electrocardiogram. Now we'll talk more about that, uh, the Osborne waves and what the, what they mean and a little bit about that. But uh, the next phase, the next stage is, um, is severe hypothermia where the temperature tends to be below 86 degrees Fahrenheit. And here's where, you know, patients get awfully sick. Um, severe sinus bradycardia and, um, you know, all kinds of um, abnormalities in their rhythm, which can be anything, could be a systole, PEA, V-fib, uh, anything uh, is is uh, is uh, possible, and the reason for that is that under cold temperatures, under cold temperatures, uh, the myocardial uh, tissue is very very irritable. So anything you do uh, can have a detrimental effect on the heart. And no one they say things like "Don't start, don't do CBR." Well, that's silly. You got to do CBR. a patient who's asystolic like this, but you got to take into consideration the potential for causing. Myocardial irritation, you know, things like that, and worsening outcomes because of the fact that you're actually irritating the myocardium. Um, so, uh, so those are the things that we tend to see in um, in those within those three clinical stages. Steve.
0: Okay. No, that's that's those are important kind of things to think about when you're assessing these patients and using that clinical data in conjunction with the history, the exam findings, you know, we, we all, uh, you know, in pre-hospital medicine, we rely on those things all the time in emergency medicine. And, you know, especially in the ICU, right. We, we rely on things like imaging and labs, um, for a lot of our diagnoses. And, and frankly, you know, those are not as useful in this um, kind of scenario. You're probably going to get a CT of that gentleman's head. You're going to get a chest X-ray, but your clinical presentation and the history is really what was most important and what kind of clued you into to what was going on. Um, so let's talk about EKGs. And if I was really sophisticated, I would be leading in here with um, Crazy Train by Ozzy <coughs> Osbourne, um, because I think that's a great kind of, he did not invent the Osbourne wave, um, as I as I thought so many years ago, um, but he still is one of my favorite performers by far. But um, let's talk about the EKG because there are some interesting findings in the EKG. Um, and there's one really kind of you know uh, definitive finding what you um, kind of led into, which is that Osborne wave or the J wave. And I know it goes by some other names as well, but what are some of the more common EKG findings and then we can talk a little bit more about the Osborne wave and, and what its significance is as well.
1: Sure. Terrific. Um, we'll get into that in a second. But just to kind of make a comment on what you said, you know, these patients yeah. come in and it's, it's super important to make sure they really are hypothermic. And that's why they're behaving the way they are and not because of something else. Right. So a fellow found like this could be trauma, uh, could be head injury. And guess what head injury does? Osborne waves too, right? That's one way they can present. So it is really important that you assess a patient like this kind of globally and not just say, oh, look, his temperature is low, so there's got to be hypothermia for all his presentation. Can't, can't say that. So this, this, this sort of a patient needs a sort of a full trauma workup along with a workup for hypothermia. So just want to say that, because that's an important thing. Uh, we, we need to prevent ourselves getting anchored onto right. one thing you think might be the case. So going on to Osborne waves, you know, Osborne waves are, the reason why they're so important is because, you know why they are so important? Because they're tested on. Every ER board exam question absolutely, definitively, you know, has it no matter what you're doing. They have Osborne waves on them, so you gotta know about them. <laughs> That's why they're important, really. But they're very nonspecific and they're not, they're absolutely not pathognomonic for, for a hypothermia. And I think you mentioned it. Um, you know, John J. Osborne was, in fact, not the person to first, you know, report it. It was first reported by a guy called uh, in 19, 1938 or something like that, by a fellow by the name of uh, uh, Um and he reported. But uh, John Osborne is the one who first published it, I believe, in 1952. In uh, in a in, a, in a, um, a journal, I think the American Journal of Physiology, and I think it was dog studies that he that he studied dogs that he studied, and um, and made a very eloquent um, observation. And in his, you know, in in respect to him, it, it was actually uh, called Osborne waves, but they are also called uh, sort of a multitude of things, and they're called um, Osborne waves, but they're also called things like. J waves, which I really think is confusing. I'll tell you why. They're also called late delta waves and there's, there's thing called the Hamel, the, the, uh, the Hathok sign or the Hathok Junction, multiple names for the same finding. Uh, I like to call them hypothermic waves, right? Because that's what it is. That's what defines them. Um, but uh, be careful when you hear these different terms and especially be careful when you refer to these as J waves, and the reason for that is that J waves can easily be be misunderstood as the J point. Two very different things, right? Yeah. Um, J waves are essentially a, a depolarization late depolarization abnormality that you see in patients who are in where the heart is very cold, but the J point is something that is a different location, usually after the J wave, uh, and it marks the the transition between the QRS complex and the ST segment, right? It's usually right there at that point where we call the J point, and that is how we define ST elevation MI, right? Not the J wave itself. So because of that, I think it's confusing, and um, we should really get away from these little, um, these these very specific and, uh, I don't know, I think misleading names. So they're Osborne waves or hypothermic waves, something simple that makes us understand exactly what this is and not to confuse it with something else like the J-point. Um, so it's also important, I think we, we mentioned this before, that you see this a lot, okay, you see this a lot um, in, in patients who have hypothermia, um, usually below 30 degrees Celsius um, however, it is not pathognomonic, right? It is not pathognomonic of hypothermia. As a matter of fact, I mean, I'm not even sure how many, but there's a, there's a bunch of different causes. And, um, you know, there's, there's uh, I think, uh, you know, vasospasm causes it. Uh, certainly traumatic brain injury will cause these things, these awkward waves. Um, I think in terms of metabolic uh, abnormalities, uh, calcium hypercalcemia causes it. Uh, Sepsis, I believe, can cause it. Also, Brigada can cause it. Also, so there's a bunch of things that can present with these little um, Osborne waves that can be misleading. So the history is really important, and you know, and confirmation of a true rectal, um, uh, you know, temperature is really important before you call it what it is, a Osborne wave secondary to hypothermia. So, um, so let's, let's just be, I think, um, you know, just be mindful of that.
0: Yeah, no, I think that's important. And, you know, we, in medicine, well, let's, let's go back to just the naming of the Osborne wave. That is so common in medicine, right? That, that, uh, you know, it's not the person who initially (coughs) discovered or, uh, you know, discovered the finding it's often the first to publish. That's a whole, whole, uh, whole other series that we could be talking about, but I think, you know, it is confusing and we should just be talking about, you know, these waves for what they are, you know, which is uh, hypothermia waves or things of that, you know, I think that's probably a better vernacular for, you know, for defining that and knowing that, you know, this, it's not pathognomonic, it's not only hypothermia that you might see these waves in, but something clearly to think about when you do see an Osborne wave. Um, One of the other things I've learned is that, the degree or the height of the Osborne wave can correlate to the degree of hypothermia. Is that something that, is that a, a, a true truism or is this another one of our kind of medical mythologies like vitamin K, anaphylaxis and contrast-induced nephropathy? Is that, where, where does this beast lie in, 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 mythology, in, in mythology or reality? You know, I think it's up there, man. I think it's, uh, I've yeah. heard that too.
1: And I've seen cases where, you know, it's kind of like the hyperkalemia EKG, right? Right. Uh, The degree of the T-wave, peak T-wave does not really correlate that well with the level of, um, uh, the true level of hyperkalemia. So I'd be careful with that one because I just haven't seen any studies that say, uh, or if there are, I haven't seen it, uh, that the... that the there's a correlation between the height or the amplitude of the wave and the degree of hypothermia. So
0: not, yeah, uh, so it's something to think about, right? So yeah, right. It's it's one of those things that we hear about, and whether or not you know there's some truth behind it remains unclear for sure. Um, can we talk about defibrillation um, and pacing in hypothermia? Um, I actually wrote an article on on this. In the Journal of Emergency Medical Services, I think it was back in 1996 or 97. I don't even know if it's like in PubMed or, um, you know, even exists anymore. Um, And I'm sure things, you know, things have changed. All that, you know, information was really in animal studies. Um, They're clearly, you know, it's not ethical to do a randomized controlled trial of this kind of um, intervention. But Uh, what's your understanding and experience with both pacing in the setting of hypothermia and defibrillation?
1: Yeah, so I think that um, the teaching, first of all, was um, way back, you know, way back when, when I was in training and all that. It's like nothing works, like a cold heart, nothing works. You have to not do anything really or do minimal things because you can really like jostle the patient and they go into a malignant rhythm. I think think it's swung a little bit. Um, And and to say that, um, you know, you got to take care of the patient first, right? Understand that a lot of these therapeutic measures, you know, cardiac meds, um, pressors, atropine, uh, as well as uh, things like electricity, just aren't going to work when we have a severely hypothermic patient. They're just not going to work. So the teaching, I think, that I feel most comfortable with is to yeah, a patients in cardiac arrest, you've got to do the cardiac arrest protocol. You can't say, well, they're cold, they're not going to do anything, right? That's a, that's a chip shot. But then, so what, what's next? You know, I would say, you know, you got to initiate things like even, even shocking. Um, it will probably not work in severe hypothermia, but it's worth a try while, right? While you continue to actively and probably invasively need to rewarm these patients, to the point where they're out of the severe range of hypothermia, and then they might have an effect. And it's okay to pace a patient, just it's probably not gonna work. Um, and if you're having, you know, this patient was paced, they attempted it and it didn't work. Um, and I think one attempt of something like that is reasonable because you gotta do something. But if it doesn't work, I wouldn't keep doing it. And like, it wouldn't shock. I've heard of cases where it was like shock, 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 15 times. And nothing happened um and it was a patient who was actually um in uh, ha- was hypomagnesemic like severely well you can't you have to treat the cause right similarly you have to treat this cause um uh, while you're doing things in conjunction what's your experience with it? i think that this people are stuck here right we have to do something right we have to do right. something but you do it and cpr effective cpr might just be all you have you know while you're doing a perinolage uh, to get that core temperature just up into the moderate range where these effects will be useful. These, uh, correction, these, uh, these interventions will be useful. So what has your, been your experience with yeah, this?
0: Yeah, I think the same. And I think, you know, one of the, one of the pitfalls of ACLS and other, um, you know, programs of its type is that this kind of resuscitation becomes too protocolized, right? It's your, you know, you here's, I mean, I, I, back in the day when it was shock, 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 epinephrine, shock, we use britilium in the setting of um, hypothermia if I'm dating myself there. Um, but, That's you right. know, I think, you know, I think, and they reserve, um, you know, this kind of thinking for PEA. But I think with every cardiac arrest, you really need to kind of think what's my cause? What are my interventions? What's going to work? What isn't going to work? Um, right. If I'm doing something and it's not working, what's my next step? And really stepping out of the box in any cardiac arrest situation, thinking about you know what, what's working, what isn't working, what's my underlying cause. I think in the setting of hypothermia, you're not going to continually shock someone. Um, I, I think you're right. Give it a shot. See what happens. Pacing similarly, but um, if it's not working, continue rewarming, and then try again when you get to a temperature where you might have some success. But just continually stopping to shock the patient, um, you know, you're you're causing delays in in CPR. Um, you know, uh, and and that's really going to put you behind the eight ball. Um, you know that in this scenario, rewarming is most important. Get them to a temperature they need to be at, and then maybe retry those interventions. So I think that's you know. I think what you bring up is is great advice. Let's let's follow the standards. Let's do an intervention, but let's not anchor on it. And if it's not working, move on and think of other things. And sometimes you may need to do just continuous CPR until you get to a point where these interventions have a better chance of um, be, being successful. Um, and and you know I I think similarly with medications you know, you're not, they're not going to work, you know, when someone's too cold. Uh, Once they're rewarmed and those enzymes, you know, are are functional and those receptors are more functional, then you might want to try those. So on that same topic, you've mentioned, you know, uh, several methods of rewarming. So what are, what are, we'll, we'll leave mild and moderate hypothermia out Um, That's, you know, kind of been covered in previous podcasts and talks and and live sessions. Let's specifically talk about, you know, kind of the severe um, hypothermic patient who's either peri-arrest or in cardiac arrest. What are some um, rewarming modalities that you're going to use in those patients?
1: Yeah, you know, um, an important point here is that when a patient is in cardiac arrest, and as as our listeners know, there's either passive or active rewarming, it's the active rewarming that's really in play here, like you said, in these cases of severe hypothermia, especially if the patient's in cardiac arrest, right? That's what you got to do. And that might be something like, you know, that might be something like, um, you know, a uh you know chest tube or perineal lavage is actually simple to do. I've done it. It's a midline incision, it's a lot of warm fluid. Um I'm not sure what it is. I think it's like 104 degrees Fahrenheit to 106, something like that. Um, you know that's a fair range, I think, to start uh, lavaging. Uh, there, there's uh, bladder irrigation too, bladder re- rewarming. These are all things that I think work well, but you got to do it quickly and with trained crew, trained staff, and do it sort of side by side. You can't say things like, "Okay, so the patient's in cardiopress now. Let's go ahead and do a bladder irrigation and see if that works." You know, you just can't do that. Sometimes they need all three measures at the same time. They might need an, uh, an OG tube, uh, a, a, a permeal um, you know, lavage, bladder irrigation, things like that, you know, simultaneously to get that temperature up as quickly as possible into that, maybe that moderate range where now your cardiac medications might have a better chance of working, right? So I'm very aggressive with, uh, with uh, treating patients like this um you know have i ever done thoracotomy hypothermia i have never have i've never done a thoracotomy to wash out the chest for uh for someone who's that cold but i do start things i do start things you know side by side and not do things sequentially because i don't think that's effective
0: yeah you need to kind
1: of you gotta get all the interventions started yeah sure most the most effective one obviously is ECMO, right um, ECMO is the most effective, the quickest way of getting it, uh, getting the body warmed up. If you have the staff and the capability, which uh, which many places don't have, so I think although the ECMO data is great in terms of rapid rewarm, um, it's fantastic. Uh, it's not going to work if you aren't trained for it or if you can't support it. So, so you have to make sure that you. Exactly. You have to make sure you do it only if you are able to do it.
0: Yeah, no, um, it is
1: the best. It is the best uh, way of doing it.
0: And you know, I um, mentioned that I worked, you know, as a medic. Um, I spent ten years, uh, you know, doing air transport, helicopter EMS. Um, we oftentimes would transport patients uh, to tertiary care centers capable of doing ECMO. Um, for that very reason, there, you know, if you don't have that available as a resource it's a consideration to transfer those patients. They're very technically difficult transfers though, right? Especially if you're doing CPR for prolonged periods of time during, you know, transport, um, those patients are, are not likely to have good outcomes. Uh, but you know, certainly, um, it's, it's worth a shot, uh, if you have that as an available resource uh, to you. And, um, those are, those, you know, those are important things, I think, and and you mentioned this, that people are trained. I think those are important things that if you are, you know, have patients that present with hypothermia to your setting, um, to practice those and to stimulate them and to make sure people know how to use the fluid rewarmers, um, know how to, you know, um, instill, um, you know, bladder irrigation. Those are things that you aren't going to be doing that often. And I think, it's an important point that you bring up that just repeat you know training simulating and practicing those kind of things is really you know pretty important um so let's get back to your case um you know you left us on a cliffhanger with this guy uh you know getting rusk and so what happened from there and what were some of the take home points from that case right um right so you know
1: As you know, you know, anytime you have a patient who's young, right, young, viable, who's actually a college student, you know, parents get involved, and it's terrible, it's awful, it's emotional and um, extremely distressing. Um, He actually had a prolonged resuscitation in the ER. Um, He had, you know, invasive active resuscitation. Uh, being performed uh, medications just weren't effective so you had to have prolonged cpr and so imagine all the you know, the, the complications of that you know fractured ribs the whole bit um and um just the long downtime basically was um, the most uh, catastrophic um, thing that happened and uh you know he actually made it he eventually had rosk uh, and um, and made it to the ICU, but unfortunately, did have some a lot of residual brain injury, um, and um, you know it, it was a difficult thing for everybody. Everybody was um, just mortified, uh, and and people you know did the best they could, um, but sometimes some you know despite the best efforts, patients have bad outcomes. And That's a really important thing to understand,
0: you know. And so. you are a big pro- people who. Uh, follow you on social media um, and well, people who work with you, but other people who follow you on social media um, and many of your um, programs and educational um, programs know that you're a big proponent of debriefing and checklist and debriefing. And that stems from your experience as a pilot and as a flight surgeon. Um, how do you debrief um, on, a, on a case like this? And, and do you have a hypothermia? First of all, actually, do you have a, a severe hypothermia checklist that you use? Um, and second, you know, what kind of methods do you use to debrief these kind of cases that are, you know, young guy, critically ill, um, really complicated case? Yeah. So
1: um, yes, and yes, um, I do use a. A hypothermia checklist that puts me in the correct ballpark of identifying a patient who truly has hypothermia, and when they are severely hypothermic, we fall to a T. Uh, it's not done by everybody. I understand that, and uh, most ER doctors probably would not use something like this, but I do. And I have a, I have a, you know, several sets of uh, checklists that we use, as we use in aviation. Uh, to deal with things that are absolutely, you know, a, a sort of a non-miss scenario—you can't miss certain things, right? Uh, this is the perfect example of that. Um, and um, and the debriefing part, yeah, absolutely. And uh, for my days as a flight surgeon, you know, I've been using, you know, debriefs, doing debriefs with my my staff, my crews. And one of the challenges, you know, we did a flight admission in the military. You do a flight, you know, real flight come down, things aren't well. You debrief and you have time, you know, the, you just have time. You can take hours to debrief a case. The ER is a very, very different animal, right? You have a case like this that takes whatever, an hour or more. And suddenly everyone's washed out. You know, your your endogenous, you know, um, uh, adrenaline's depleted. And you go out and the ER is still buzzing. You've got to take care of the next patients. And God forbid, another case comes right in, right? Right. So it's really hard to debrief, um, debrief your staff on cases like this because it just takes time. So what I use is something that I call the five-minute debrief, and quite frankly, it takes less than five minutes. So the first thing I do is I tell people before we even start, I say, listen, this is going to be a difficult case. It's coming in. Uh, We're going to do it, and um, we're going to talk about it at the end of it, in the debrief, so don't leave. Uh, And after the case, I summon the entire crew in, and I'm talking about everybody. I'm talking about not just ER uh, staff, docs, nurses, but I'm talking about, um, you know, RTs, you know, they, they, they are key in, in things like this, EMS, right, ED techs, they're all involved. So I will actually summon everybody who was in the case into a room before I tell them, listen, you can, you can spare five minutes, the world won't stop, the ER won't fall apart, but this is important. And I go through the, the five minute checklist, which is essentially five items, which is basically, I summarize very quickly what happened, we talk about what went well. We identify them. That's really important to do. We talk about what went, what didn't go well. Uh, and it's important to say that it's not who didn't do well, but what didn't do well. There's absolutely no finger pointing, no punitive measures, no blame, no blame on anybody. But we identify what didn't go well. And in this case, a few things didn't go well because of the chaotic nature of it and all that. And then we figure out, And we all talk about how we make things better we identify Um, and i have people actually judge great themselves as to how they performed and what's funny is that across the board i've done this for a long time now you know 20 years and people tend to actually be significantly harder on themselves after a case like this and that is an important thing to recognize and it is important because at the end of the day, we all go home and we all have to be whole again to take care of the next patient. And you can't go home thinking you did a bad job. Uh, you can go home thinking that the patient didn't do well, the case didn't do well, but you didn't do a bad job because you are just as important as anybody else on the team. And there are reasons why things didn't go well. And sometimes, as you know, Steve, you have no choice. It just doesn't go well because it's just faith, right? You can't help it. And so it's a really super important point that I think is not done well enough or frequently enough um, in, in in ERs uh, across
0: places I've worked
1: at least. What's been your experience with this? Am I am I am I the only one of the only people who do it or Does something you like know, this? I, or?
0: I, I mean I do it because I learned it from you, so that's uh, where. <laughs> Uh, And also in my experience in helicopter EMS, you know, it was a very important part to not only debrief the case, but also safety issues in the aviation piece. So I think, you know, it's a great way to, to learn. It's a great, great way to self-reflect. And I think the most important piece that you talked about was making sure that you're going home um, feeling whole and feeling that your contribution was worthwhile and that not all cases go well and that it's not in one individual's um you know fault for that. Um it's all it's usually just the the you know the system um or the case or extraneous factors, but we're all here. We all you know we all are here to care for people and we all do the best we can. And I think you know that's in your your take-home message is, is an important one. Um, so I wanna thank you again. We're joined again today by Dr. Sush Prusty, emergency medicine physician, pilot, uh, uh, and educator. Um, you uh, have a, a social media following on MyHeartMD and that's on Instagram and you do a lot of educational programming there. How else can people connect with you uh, in social media or in other formats?
1: yeah you know uh, social media is a, it's a crazy thing it's, uh it's, a, it's an awesome thing and I've met so many people uh, through this thing called social media right the this new platform there's so many of them that I belong to some of them but I've really focused my efforts since I like EKGs and EKG education debriefings checklists things like that I've been focusing my efforts on on Instagram for now and like you said it's my heart MD uh, and my contact information is all there. So, so, great. Uh, stuff, you know, if people would reach me and share cases, talk about stuff, I'm totally open for it. And uh, I, I do, it's just as a matter of fact, received two calls today uh, on really cool cases that we'll share with people over the next
0: couple of weeks or so. So, uh feel free to call. Well, great. Well, thank you all for joining us. Um, if you like this podcast and are interested in more content like this, make sure to visit worldextrememedicine.com for links to an array of um, educational opportunities, news, job opportunities, and updates. Um, WEMcast, WEMcast.podbean.com for more podcasts like this one. Um, And the WEM, WEM.academy for podcast videos and updates on our upcoming live sessions. Make sure to follow us on Instagram, on Facebook, and Twitter to keep up to date on content and news in extreme and austere medicine. And certainly make sure to join us either live or virtually on November 13th through the 15th for the Extreme Expo, um, which is going to be in Edinburgh. And thank you all. Be healthy, be safe, and we'll see you next time on the World Extreme Medicine Podcast.